The following is an audio sermon from Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. For more free audio content, search Sacred City Church in your iTunes store. Ephesians 2, 11-22 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, mm. which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with all the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Finally, we are in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. I don't know how long we've been doing this, 10 weeks or something like that. And we got to the second chapter last week. Uh, basically, the crazy thing about the book of Ephesians is we're two chapters into it, and Paul has not given us, that was a segue, right? All of a sudden I was talking, and all of a sudden I'm preaching. That's just what happens, okay? That's just how it goes. <clears throat> we're two chapters into the book of Ephesians, and, and Paul has not given us a single imperative. He's um, went on this tirade, this 202-word sentence in the Greek it's called a doxology, just a statement of praise of what God has done in Christ Jesus. He's, he's used these big, huge grenade words like predestined, adopted, chosen, lavished, grace, free, love. I mean, he just poured out what Christ has done and what God has done for us in Christ. But he hasn't told us one single thing to do. And that's backwards to most of our upbringing, I think. And that's backwards to many churches. That's backwards to the way that I, my tendency, my nature wants to parent. I don't want to parent through grace. I want to parent through a bunch of indicatives or through much of imperatives. Do this, do this, do this. Be good, son. Be good, be good, be good, be good. That's how I want to parent because I am a legalistic Pharisee in my nature. We, most of us are. Most of us are. But Paul's doing something different here. He's not giving us any imperatives. He's just giving us indicatives for the first two chapters. All right, but here in, first 11, here in verse 11, that's where we're at, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, we get our first imperative. Say first. first. All right, let's look at it. Here it is. Paul finally gives us something we can do. All you legalists out there are ready. All you firstborns, all you type A personalities, right? All you Ds, all you ENTJs, whatever Myers-Briggs you are, you guys have been waiting for something to do. Finally, you got something to do. Look at verse 11. Where are we at? Uh, if I can find it myself. Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. The first thing Paul tells us to do is I want you to remember. What does he want us to remember? Um, if, if you go through there, you're going to see, I want you to remember that you were separated 
Verse 12, I want you to remember that you were alienated. I want you to remember that you were strangers. I want you to remember you had no hope. And I want you to remember that you were without God in the world. The first thing he tells us to do sounds a lot like bad news. And he's telling you, I want you to remember how busted and how broke and how depraved and how sinful and how jacked up and how dead you were in your sin before Christ. The first imperative he tells us to do is remember that we are alienated strangers. Now I want you to, I want to ask you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever really felt like an outsider? Have you really felt alienated, stranger, the only, you know, the only one that doesn't get it in the room? Uh, do you remember what it feels like to be that person on the outside looking in? Uh, maybe it was getting cut from a sports team. Maybe you didn't make the, you know, you didn't make the fraternity, you didn't make the sorority. Maybe you got passed over for that promotion that you thought you got. Maybe you thought you had that perfect guy or that perfect girl, and she chose somebody else or he chose somebody else. Have, do, you, do you know, can you go to a place in your mind right now where you know the feeling of being alienated, of being separated, of being on the outside looking in? Can you go there right now? I'm pretty sure that we've all felt the pain of being a stranger who've been separated from a group that we've wanted to belong to. Uh, how many times did you think while growing up, if I just get into that group, I'll be happy? If, now, now, now we're a little more sophisticated. It's, it, you know, now if I just get that car, or if I just get that promotion, or if I just get that job, or if I just get that degree, then my heart will finally be settled. I'll finally be at rest. I'll finally be happy. All I need is just that. Right? All I need is for my guy to get in the White House. If my guy gets in the White House, everything's happy. Right? We're good for at least four years. Now, hopefully, if you vote, you voted long enough to realize that good feeling lasts about three months, right? With whoever we put in office, and then we start hating the guy, right? <clears throat> now, I remember my, my sophomore year of high school, um, wrestling, uh, wrestling on the varsity uh, wrestling team, we hadn't had anybody make the state tournament in four or five years, so I'd never seen anybody growing up make the state tournament. And I remember as a, as a, as a varsity wrestler my sophomore year, um, being on the outside of that group of people, that select group of people that qualify for the state tournament. They get to wear the, you know, they go to the tournaments and they get to wear the shirt that says state qualifier or they, they announce you at a wrestling meet, state qualifier or state place winner, blah, blah, blah. And, you, and I remember being on the, as a sophomore realizing, I'm on the outside of this group. And I really want to be on the inside of this group. This is an elite group. This is a select group. Everybody else are losers, all right? I don't want to be that guy, all right? Everybody else are the guys that run out of the mat and trip on the edge of the mat, right? That's everybody else. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be on the inner circle. That's what I want. I want to be on the inner circle. And uh, when you're on the outside of the circle looking in, you say all kind of things. Like, number one, you kind, you know, you're a little jealous of the people on the inside of the circle. So you say, when I get on the inside of the circle, I'm never going to act like that. I'm not going to wear my state shirt every single tournament. I'm not going to walk with a swagger like that. I'm not going to look down on other people. I'm going to be different. When I, get, when I go to the state, I'm going I'm to be different. When I get in that, tur that, that circle, I'm going to act differently. If I had that money, I wouldn't act like that. I wouldn't spend it like that. If I had that, I wouldn't do that. If I had that job, I wouldn't do that. If I had that degree, I wouldn't just make all the money in the world. I'd go to Africa, and I'd serve people that really needed it. If I was going to be a doctor, I wouldn't just build up, a, you know, amass this huge collection of things. I'd go serve poor people if I had it. We all like to get real uh, self-righteous when we're on the outside looking in. But that is, uh, 
so untrue. When a person feels, this is a, when a person feels like an outsider but then works their way into good graces of the group, they become just as proud and alienating, alienating as those who are already the elitist members. All right, so true for me. When I finally, when I did my junior year, finally qualified for the state tournament, guess what I did? Mom, go buy me one of them t-shirts. Put my name on the back, all right? I want everybody to know I earned it. I made my way into the elite group, and I walked with a swagger, and I looked down on everybody else, and I became just that same type of person that I did not like. That's who I became. When you work hard to earn your way into the group, it could be law school, it could be med school, it could be whatever it is, liberal, conservative. When you work your way into it, when you memorize all the talking points, you get your way in, you become just as arrogant and proud and as elitist as the people that you didn't like before when you were on the outside. But Paul is showing us something brilliant here. He's showing us how grace, the gospel of grace, destroys that mentality. I want you to look. Uh, this really... now. Um, first off, Paul is saying, if you remember what it felt like to be outsiders, if you remember what it felt like to be dead, if you remember what it felt like, and then you realize and you remember that you were brought in only by sheer grace, only by the good graces of God, it's going to make you different. It's going to make you radically generous people. It's going to make you radically welcoming people. That's what the gospel of grace is going to do. See, we haven't worked our way into an elite group of people called the church. We've been brought in by the blood of Christ. We have not earned this. This is a gift of grace. And Paul is saying remembering that should make us radically welcoming to those outside our church and outside the community of faith. And I'm going to tell you, this is not going to be, it's not going to be a comforting passage for us. This isn't going to give us warm fuzzies, okay? This is going to confront some idols in our life as Americans. It's going to confront some stuff up in our grill tonight. It's going to, it's going to be uh, pretty difficult. So I'm going to say there's going to be three challenges. There's three challenges for us as a church, as Sacred City Church. There's three challenges that we're going to see from this passage. Number one, we're going to see the necessity of the church, the absolute necessity of the church. I want you to look at verse 10. Uh, or, I'm sorry, in verses 1, th verses one through 10, we, we preached on it last week, you were dead in your trespasses, right? Everybody say dead. dead. All right, I watched the whole se last season of The Walking Dead. I had to. It was mandatory uh, when I'm talking about dead people being made alive. It was pretty good this week. Verse 1 through 10, listen, we should, most of us like this. It's talking about individualism. It's talking about individualistic people. It's talking about individuals being made alive. It's something that happens internally. At one time, though, every single person, every single person on this planet was dead in their sin. And God acted and saved some and regenerated them and their heart came alive and they gave, he gave them the gift of grace and the gift of faith to believe in him, that God has done that. And that is something that's internal. We don't know when it happens. And that's something that's individualistic. But now listen. That happened, now verse 11 happens, all right? Verse 11, if 1 through 10 is individually and internally, 11 through 22 addresses us corporately and relationally. Corporately and relationally. God first gives us life. He makes spiritually dead people come alive, and then he relates them. I love this. God makes you alive, and he relates them deep, in deep ways in the church. 
He makes dead people come alive, and then he relates them in deep ways in the church. Um, right now, there's like a revival. American spirituality is at a peak. Uh, a few, 20, 30 years ago, people were saying, well, religion's going to die out. It's going to be the rise of the atheists and all, all this kind of stuff. That's not happened. They completely missed the boat. Uh, we, uh, spirituality is at its height right now. Everybody is spiritual. Everybody is worshiping something these days. But this is the thing. Most of them have a form of spirituality. They, they, they've got some kind of God they created in their own image, the God they created in their mind, but it's hyper-individualistic. It's hyper-private. Don't tell me your view. Don't push your view on me. Uh, this is just something I do at home, and this is a private religion. And this scripture, all of scripture actually, is radically opposed to that view. It's radically opposed to this American individualistic religion, this individualistic private religion. The Gospels are radically opposed to that. So many of us, we want verse 1 through 10, right? Nobody wants to walk around like a zombie. Nobody wants to walk around dead, blind to their own sin, blind to God, disconnected from the Father, living, chasing the American dream, chasing after all the idols of our heart, all these things that we think they're going to make us happy, then we get them and then we realize they didn't fulfill the promises of our heart. We, people chase after sex, they chase after money, they chase after relationships, they finally get a relationship, then they worship their kids, and their kids go off to college, and they fall apart, they don't know what to do, because their entire identity has been based in their kids, or the man goes off to work, or whatever, and his identity becomes whatever he does for a living, all right, we don't want that, now, verse 11 through, we're about to see how this is about to be uh, radically against our American ideals, listen, can you have the power of God? This is what we're about to see, and this is, I'll, I'll make this statement. Can you have the power of God flow through you as an individual, solely as an individual? Can you have the power of God flow through you solely as an, as an individual and not as a part of a community of faith and mission? This is what we want as American. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. I want the good things God offers. I want the dead being made alive. But I don't want to have anything to do with the church. This is a private thing, man. I don't have to go and worship. It's all about me and God or me and whatever God they're serving. Can you do that? The Bible answers emphatically no. Emphatically no. Absolutely not. Now, if you come to, God, if you come to the God of the Bible... If you come to the God of the Bible and you say, well, I want some individual help. I want a better marriage. I want a better life. I want better kids. I want to go to heaven. You come to the Bible and you say, I want some individual help, but I don't have anything to do with the church. The God of the Bible says, okay, but, but that's not me. You're going to have to invent. You're going to have to create a God in your imagination after your own fit and image, after your own likeness, after your own desires, the God of the Bible says, that's not me. <clears throat> you can go to another religion. Many people do. Go to another religion. Go to Hinduism. Go to Buddhism. Uh, go, there's a lot of things you could go, go to where if you want a, a very individualistic religion, meditate, just connect you and him, that's it. But you can't come to the God of the Bible with that individualistic view. And I'm about to build this out. So first off, we see the absolute necessity. So he says this, verse 11, therefore, remember. That means everything he's about to say was built upon, built upon what he said in verse 1 through 10. 
Therefore, since you've been made alive, since you've been saved, since God acted upon you and brought the dead to life, this is what's about to happen, okay? <clears throat> Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh by hands, remember that you were at the same time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in, in Christ Jesus, you have, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has been made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For, though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but look, but you are fellow citizens. The second thing we're going to see, first off, the church is absolutely necessity. It's an absolute necessity. The second thing I want you to see is I want you to see the intensity, the intensity of the church, all right? Look at verses 19 there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, okay? First one, when you've been made alive, when you when Christ has acted upon your heart, when you put your faith in him, you're made fellow citizens. That's the first metaphor he uses, fellow citizens. All right, No longer is your allegiance to the flag. No longer is your allegiance primarily to um, your neighborhood or your upbringing or your work or, or your, your, your whatever identity you wrap yourself around, your, you, you, know, you being an American. Primarily, black, white, whatever, primarily, no longer are you that. Primarily, you now are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You've been adopted. You've been brought into something different. Okay? Citizen, that's not too bad. Citizen, how do I relate with people when I'm a citizen? I mean, that's not too bad. I got neighbors. I got friends. That's kind of that's chill. That's, that's not very intense. That's fine. But I want you to watch his progression of this thought. Okay? Look at this. Citizens first. And then look what, what, what the next one. Fellow citizens with the saints. Look at now. And members of the household, okay? Do you see the increasing intensity of this thought? We went from citizens, now he's saying you're members of the household. Uh-oh. Okay, citizens have certain rights. Citizens have, you know, certain responsibilities, cert certain things required of them. But now he's saying not only are you citizens, now you're family. Oh, wow. That's getting a little more intense. Okay, my relation to each other and now our relation to God is getting even more intense. Before, we were relating to God like a king or like a president. Now he's our father. Now you're no longer are my neighbors and my, and my you know, fellow citizens. Now you're my family members. Do you see how the intensity of our relationship is increasing here? Do you see that? Okay, well, let's see what, else, what happens next. Verse 19, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Then he goes on, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. Say being. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now he's saying, he said citizens, he said family, now you're building blocks in a temple. 
You're being made into a temple where his spirit can dwell. I want you to think, you're building blocks. How are you related to the people next to you now? You're cemented together. All right, citizens, hi, how you doing? I can wave at you. I can, I can, I can walk by. You know, I, I'm not re- family members. Man, I got to deal with family members at least on Christmas and Easter. Okay, I got to deal with them then at least. But now he's saying not only that, I want you to see the intensity of this. Paul's saying the necessity of the church. You can't be a Christian on your own. You can't live on an island. You can't have this privatized religion. That's not how it's built. That's not what it's about. He's saying your citizens, your family, now your building blocks cemented to the people next to you. You're cemented to them. And not only that, God is now going to be in you. He's going to fill you. He was like a king when you're a citizen. He's like a dad when you're a family. But now he's going to be in you. This is unheard of at this time. This is, this is very challenging, man. This is, this is very much in their face. He's going to live in them now. He's going to live in us. So I can hear you saying, oh, okay, okay. If Paul's saying, you ha- we have to be a part of the church, if you, want, if you really want to have an intimate relationship with God, if you want to be a f- follower of Christ, he's saying to the Ephesian people, this is what it looks like, guys. You went from citizens, then you went to family, then you're going to together, and the Holy Spirit's going to fill you all. The Holy- he's not saying the Holy Spirit will fill your block. He's saying the Holy Spirit will fill the temple. Us together. The Holy- so I can hear you already saying, well, just how involved do I have to be? Right? All right, Justin, you've made a pretty good case, or Paul, you've made a pretty good case here. The necessity of the church, the, the intensity of the church, but just how, how involved do I have to be? One Sunday? One Wednesday? How involved do I have to be to be involved? Well, I give you two things here. You, these two things, if you know you, this is how involved you need to be, and we'll, we'll get them from the text here. Number one, you need personal accountability, and number two, you need corporate responsibility. Number one, personal accountability. Number two, corporate responsibility. I want you to turn, you can keep your finger in uh, Ephesians, but I want you to turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three, verse 13. When you're there, say there. Oh, not very many. I'm waiting. Three, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Sorry, guys, the new version. I didn't actually put it on there. Hebrews 3, verse 13. When you're there, say there. All right, here we go. Look at this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? Why? It says it right there. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must be so involved in a missional community that we have people in our lives who don't just know our big sins, but they know the sins that we typically miss. The small things that if, if left unnoticed, they can harden our hearts. The sins that we are blind to are most besetting sins. Listen, The personal accountability, being a part of a missional community. You've got to have someone in your life who cares enough about you 
that you've given them permission to say, how are you doing today? No, 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 no. Fine. I know you're fine. I know everybody's fine. How are you really doing today? Are you, where's your identity at? Are you, are, are you back into those, you know, those old ways? Are you trying to earn your acceptance for the father? Are you trying to get your identity from the guy you're dating or the girl you're dating? Are you trying to get your, are you still working on that? Are you still wrestling with that? I mean, are, are you out there earning a living and working all your life away and you're not spending any time with your wife, you're not spending any time with your kids and you're out there earning it? Is that what's going on right now? What's going on in your heart? Personal accountability. This is why we're doing that. We've been cemented together. We've been cemented together. So number one, you know you're involved, and you're involved in a church. Number one, if you've got personal accountability going on. Number two, uh, corporate responsibility. Being, we look, we look at verse 22 back in Ephesians where it says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God dwells in a people, not just in a person. God dwells in a people, not just a person. I want to uh, read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis, okay? This is uh, one of my favorite quotes. It's from uh, the book, The Four Loves. Um, How intimate do I need to be with people? How much entrance into my life do I need to let them have? How involved into a church do I need to be? Listen to this quote. C.S. Lewis, this is too intimate for most of us. We don't like to talk at this level. In this book, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, his circle of friends. Some of these friends were pretty famous. Jack, Ronald, and Ronald is J.R.R. Tolkien. If you know, he wrote The Lord of the Rings. C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. So these guys used to get together, smoke a pipe, have a pint of beer, and wrestle through all their their theology and their fictional characters and all this kind of stuff at at the White Horse Inn. Um, And listen, this is what happened. Uh, Out of those three, Charles died. And when Charles died, as awful as this is, in some sense, is what C.S. Lewis says, in some sense at least, he thought, or C.S. Lewis thought, I'll have more of Ronald. So there was something in the back of his head when Charles died, he thought, oh man, it's been the three of us wrestling through all these ideas. Now I'll get more of J.R.R. Tolkien. Now I won't be split up between the three of them. I'll actually get him all to myself. This is going to be great. He'll spend more time with Ronald because there's no rival. But what Jack realized, or C.S. Lewis realized, to his shock, is that in losing Charles, he did not have more of Ronald, but less of him. For in losing Charles, he lost the part of Ronald that only Charles could bring out. When Jack realized this, he began to think, if this is true of human beings, if no one human can bring out all of another person, but it takes a whole circle of human beings, community, to extract the real you, how much more is this true of Jesus Christ? In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need other lights than my own to show all my friend's facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald to myself, I now find that Charles is gone and I have less of Ronald. And this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness experienced to heaven itself where the great multitude of the blessed which no man can number increases the fruit on uh, that each has of God for every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest 
This is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we all shall have. He's saying, I thought when he died, I'd get more of him. But in reality, I got less because there's only certain things that Charles could bring out of him. How much more so is that true with Jesus Christ? <clears throat> there are things about Jesus that you will never know unless you are a part of a missional community. You will never experience the power of God as fully individually as you will corporately. Never. Okay, so we have the necessity of the church. We have the intensity of the church, right? That's pretty intense. Your, your stones cemented together. The Spirit of God will dwell in a people, not just a person. But now, number three, I want you to see this is one of the most important here, the vitality of the church, the vitality of the church. Verse 18. For through him, that's through Jesus Christ, we all both have access in one spirit to the Father. Say one spirit. We are vitally connected to the triune God. Listen, God, to, unique to Christianity, our God is a, is a trinity, okay? He's triune. He has three natures. There's one God, but he has three natures, all right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to hear this. Our God in his nature is a community, is a loving community. God himself is a loving community. There's unity in diversity in God himself. So when God says, love me, he's not just being arrogant. He is love himself because he exists himself in a loving community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father loves the Son. Son loves the Spirit. They all love each other. They exist in a, inside of a loving community. Now listen, doesn't this just make sense? If, if, if I was you know, in my philosophy class, doesn't this follow here? If God exists in himself inside a loving community, that's who he is. Well, if he saves us into something, if he brings us into something, don't you think he would be bringing us into a loving community? Don't you think, doesn't that just make sense? How could you relate to a God who exists inside of a community of love without him drawing you into a community? It follows, right? Okay, but this is where we're, this is where we're pushed back. All right, Justin, that's a lot of theology. That's a lot of scripture. That's a lot of stuff, but I've been hurt. But that's hard. But I'm introverted. All right? I'm coming to actually find out, some, to some of you are shocked, that I'm actually pretty introverted myself. All right? You guys have, some of you find it hard to believe, but it's true. Um, so when I'm at home, I don't naturally say, you know what, I, I feel like calling a bunch of people and hanging out. I feel like I hear this call from my bookshelf. All right? I've got all these books on my bookshelf that are calling my name. Right? And I, I feel... I want to sneak down but without the kids noticing, without Amanda noticing. I want to get down in my study and I want to put my nose in a book. That's what I love to do. I feel like most of the time that's what I was made to do. I crave it, all right? I don't eat during the day most of the time because I've got my nose in a book, all right? I've got the same excuse. I, I don't crave going out with a bunch of people, all right? So this is really hard. I've been hurt. Hey, I've, if, if you've been a part of a church more than eight seconds, We've all been hurt, okay? We've all been hurt because it's full of jacked up people, right? If you, come in, if you come to this church because you thought it was perfect, 
well, you just screwed us all up because we know you're not perfect, okay? We were perfect until you got here. <laughs> so, crap, we're going to have to start over. <clears throat> now, listen, if, if, you study this, if you study this section, Paul uses this word, and it's, this has really caused me to do some studying because um, it's a word that's kind of common, but we don't use it very often, and it's this word hostility. He uses this word, you've been hostile, you're hostile. God has done something with the hostility, hostility. And I started really meditating on this, and actually Tim Keller um, helped me with this thought. Um, and he said this, the reason we don't want to be in community, right here, it's not because you're hurt, it's because you're hostile. The reason you don't want to be in community, it's because we're hostile. Look, every single one of us are hostile to a certain type of person. What type of person are you hostile to? Weak, lazy, liberal, conservative, abrasive, old, young, immature, successful, the down and out, religious. What kind of person are you hostile to? You know where your hostility comes from? This is where I want to hide behind a pulpit, but I don't have one. All hostility is, is well-masked self-righteousness. Behind all hostility is this statement. I would never do that. I would never treat people like that. I would never say that. I would never let a person do that to them. I would never... All of our hostility towards other people, I would never vote like that. I would blah, 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 blah. We could go right on the line. All hostility is is well-masked self-righteousness. So what's the answer? How do we get rid of our self-righteousness that causes our hostility, that keeps us out of a loving, missional community? Verses 13 and 14. This is where a preacher could preach. Uh, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't earn our way there. You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't become a good conservative and a good moralist and, and just suck it up and start doing the right thing and start saying the right thing and start reading your Bible. You didn't do that. That's how, not how you get into the kingdom of God. That's not how you get into the church. You have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Anyone who denies that is an unbeliever, is outside the community of faith, doesn't understand grace. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Nobody becomes a member of a church unless God has done it. It's a gift of grace. And look at verse 14. For he, oh man, this is talking of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Christ is our peace. How? How is he our peace? This is why. Jesus Christ took all of our hostility upon himself. He took it. He absorbed it. He was never hostile himself, but he absorbed all of our hostility, all of our self-righteousness towards other people. I don't like that type of person because they do that, and I would never do that. Jesus Christ took it. He absorbed it. He brought it all upon himself. The technical theological term is called expiation. The Father took all the sin of the world, all of the black, sin, stained mess of the world, and placed it upon Jesus Christ as a human being. Jesus Christ never sinned, never fell short, perfect human being. 
but he took upon himself our hostility. And this is what is radical. He took upon him, not even just took our hostility in himself, but then he took the hostility of mankind. And mankind beat him, they crucified him, they killed him on a cross when he could have called 10,000 angels and removed it and started over. Instead, he took, he absorbed the hostility, our hatred for people who have wronged us. The sins that have been done against you, Christ absorbed those. And then he died with them. He took them to the cross and he completed the work the Father gave him and he died on the cross in our place for our sins. And that's only part of the good news. See, that's grace, but three days later, Three days later, Jesus stepped out of that tomb showing us that he is victorious, showing us that he has conquered, that he did what none of us could. He has reunited us, hostile sinners, to God the Father. He has reconnected us. He has reunited us, hostile sinners, to God and to each other through the gospel of grace. That's what he's done. That's what Jesus Christ has done. When we see this, as Paul says, therefore, remember. When we remember this, we can't be, we're not, we don't become this conservative watchdog group that points its finger at the world. We become radically welcoming people who remember I was just like that. I'm so hostile to those people that I need the gospel of grace. I need to re be reminded that it was nothing good in myself for which Christ called me. It was by the sheer grace of God that Jesus Christ took my hostility on the cross and he died there. Listen, tonight, if you're a believer, this is why we share in the sacraments. We basically hold the two sacraments, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. All right, And it just reminds us of what Christ has done here. It's one of the things. We do believe that, that God does something special. It's an obedience. You know, anytime we obey the Father, there's some kind of special blessing in it. There's more intimacy there. And this is one way we obey the Father. Listen, just like this bread was once many ingredients, and it's brought together in one loaf, it's the same way with us. We're all individuals. We all have our own life. But through the gospel of grace, God has united us together. Black, white, red, yellow. Doesn't matter what nationality we come from. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic class we are. We are radically welcoming people because of Christ has radically welcomed us. And then we get to share. We get to share tonight in the in the uh, sacrament of baptism, where we are literally symbolizing number one being dead in our sin and being buried with Christ and being raised again to new life. This is not just a symbol. It's not just a symbol. It's also entrance into the family of God. Uh, uh, Paul says that you're baptized into a family. That's one of the things we're going to do tonight. We're going to baptize people. They're taking a step of obedience. This is so good. The gospel's bearing fruit. God is bringing people to himself, and he's causing people to take the next step in the obedience and next step in their faith. We get to celebrate that tonight. So um, this, this is just what we do, man. This is We're gospel people, and this is just what we do. So we're going to take part in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If you are a believer, you are welcome to the table. If you have not, um, we, I would say, cross the line and put your faith in Jesus Christ, um, please do not. Paul warns against that. Um, so the table is for believers only. And uh, the way we do it around here, we, this is called, um, it's the oldest way uh, we're, um, of doing communion. It's called uh, communion by intinction. 
So we break the bread and then we actually dip it in the, in the wine or the, the grape juice and uh, we come to the table. So uh, that's just kind of how we do it. I know we've got some visitors with us today and I just wanted to make that known. So um, actually, Rich, if you could, if, since we, we prayed with you tonight, if you could come on up here. Um, let's, uh, I'm going to pray and then let's partake. Father, if there's anyone here tonight who uh, has resisted becoming a part of the church because they didn't want to be um, an insider. They didn't want to be uh, the conservative watchdog. They didn't want to be the people that look down on other people. Um, they thought being a part of the church meant that. I pray that you would uh, give them a new picture tonight. If they thought that being, they had to earn their way into the church, they had to climb the ladder to get to you, uh, that you only invite good people, um, I pray that uh, you would destroy that, that thought in their mind that uh, you only call dead people. Only dead people get made alive. Only sick people get made well. Only broken people get healed. Only disgraced people get grace. Father, I pray that you would do the work in the human heart. I pray that anybody in here has never confessed you as Lord and Savior, that they would do so tonight. They would put their faith in you and uh, they would take a step forward uh, in that process of discipleship, in that um, process of adoption into the family of God. I thank you for uh, the people that are here tonight. I thank you for all of us. I thank you for this, this work of grace that you're doing and that you continue to do. And I thank you for the table that you were broken for us. You were pushed away so that we could be brought in. You were cursed so that we could be blessed. Jesus Christ, thank you for taking our hostility. Thank you for taking the wrath of God for us. Shedding your one, thank you for shedding your one life. Thank you for shedding your blood for the remission and the covering of our own sin. In Jesus' name.